So today we're going to get into some gems from neglected passages in the Bible. This is, I think, a neglected passage in the Bible. It's really a list of greetings. It's like, say hi to this person and that person. Like in your, in your open scripture reading, this is the passage you don't want to get passed to you because it has a bunch of names you've never heard and you're supposed to pronounce them correctly. Um, and so it's, it's a list of greetings at the end of the book of Romans. Paul the Apostle, he's just saying like, hey, say hi to this person, say hi to that person for me. But I believe that within this um, neglected passage are some really wonderful gems, including, uh, along with other things, a hotly debated reference to someone named Junia, Junia, who some say was a female apostle. And uh, we'll, I'll explain that more when we get to verse 6, but we'll, we'll come to that. And also, uh, this passage weighs in on another topic, which is something called undesigned coincidences, which is uh, sort of an apologetic argument for the Bible, saying that there's these sort of integrated um, events and statements in Scripture, how one, one passage answers another passage, even though it's written by multiple different authors, that sort of thing. So if you're into apologetics and undesigned coincidences is new to you, which it may well be, this is a passage that kind of weighs in on that just a little bit, I think, because we read about characters that he talks about here in Romans 16, who are all also read about in the book of Acts. And had all this stuff been fabricated by multiple different authors, you wouldn't expect the integration that there is in scripture. So Romans 16 verse 1, let's begin. He says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Kentria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. And I want to just take a second and talk about this lady, Phoebe. Uh, it may be like, what do I, you know, how does this apply to me? Okay, it's a Phoebe, there's, there's, a, there's a Phoebe who 2,000 years ago did stuff. But there's actually some neat stuff in here. First off, Phoebe is called our sister. Now, Paul was not probably related to Phoebe by blood. Our sister is to say she's, she's, a, she's a Christian sister. You know, there's churches where they often will, will refer to each other as brother and sister. Hey, brother, hey, sister. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. Now, you can do this in a cliche cheeseball way. Hey, brother. How you doing, brother? You know, but there is a legitimate truth to this. I mean, the closest terms we have are familial family terms and that you would just call somebody a sister because they're a Christian. Oh, you believe in Jesus? You're my sister. Oh, you're a follower of Christ? You're my brother. That's a big deal to us. And we, sh- we should not lose this, nor should we think it's just cliche. You really are brother and you really are sister. And so um, hopefully uh, one thing we could get from this is just to draw it into our lives, like learn from this. Like I'm, I'm a believer and I'm a brother and sister to the other believers. I'm not a sister actually, me personally, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> do I see it though? Do I see the family relationship I have with, with other Christians or do I hold myself afar from them? Now it's possible that we hold ourselves afar from them in an unhealthy way. We can do this in our own families too. You're, you're related, but you're not treating each other like you're related. And so this can be done with Christians in the church, and that's unfortunate. Um, it goes on, it says that she's a servant of the church in Kentria. That's verse 1 there. A servant of the church. And this is interesting. The word servant here is diakonos, which is deacon. She's a deacon of the church. And now this is a, kind of a complicated thing. I won't get way into it, but this is the same word used in First Timothy when he talks about the qualifications for a deacon. 
a deacon must be this and this and this and this. She's called a deacon here. But the thing about this word deacon is it's just a word that means servant. That's literally what the word means. Um, the qualifications for a deacon in 1 Timothy 3 are the qualifications for a servant. If you want to serve in the church, you've got to have these like high moral standards so you can like wash dishes, you know, like so you can so you can do anything in the church. And obviously, they probably did other things other than just dishes. But um, it's also the same word Jesus used when he said, "Whoever wants to be great among you, let him be your servant. Let him be your diaconos or deacon." This is the same thing. So, she, so what we're saying here is she's a servant of the church, or she's in ministry. Phoebe's in ministry. That's what she is. And um, the the use of church here is interesting because it's in a local sense. We know there's the church, like the universal body of Christ. You know, all the brothers and sisters together were the church. But here it's in a local sense, the church in Kentria, and it's referring to the people who are followers of Jesus in a local area. So that's just a use of of the word church. Um, The Bible also uses, in fact, in this passage, we'll use the phrase church referring to a local gathering, a home fellowship. So a small group of people who meet in one particular house, they're called a church, the church that meets in their house. But it never uses the word, to my knowledge, to refer to a building or a location. And we do this all the time. And I'm like, hey, where are you going? I'm going to church. And in a sense, it's true, because once everybody else gets there, guess who's there? The church, right? So like you are going to church, but but in reality, like that's that's just a location. I remember uh, one teacher I've had in my life, he, he would refer to what people would call the church, he'd call that the auditorium. And it was like, oh, it just sounds so lame now, you know, I say auditorium, but but there is a truth to that. There really is. And maybe maybe we should work harder to rescue the term church away from buildings and locations and refer to only use it to refer to people. Maybe that's a good idea. And that's definitely a biblical idea. And when we're using a biblical word in, in a non-biblical way, um, it, co- it could create confusion and it could cause problems down the road. So, um, so let, let's, let's learn what we can from Phoebe here. Phoebe uh, teaches us, I think, that women can do ministry. Okay, in case you were wondering, in case this was doubted in your mind, can women do ministry? Yes. Is she a deacon in the First Timothy 3 sense? I don't know because the word is used in multiple senses. It's used in lots of different ways. She's a servant of the church. I don't think the passage is really clear on that one way or another. Um, but obviously she's in ministry. And the debate about a woman's role in the church, in the body of Christ, has never, ever been about whether or not women can do ministry. That's never been the debate. And if there are churches where only men can serve, then that's not, that's not biblical. That's not first century. That, that's, that's something else. Um, the thing that is called into question is the calling of women as regarding certain leadership roles. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. I'm not going to try to give a thorough study on that tonight because we're just doing verse by verse through this passage. But there's a couple passages, pieces that come up in the study of Romans 16 that really relate to the issue of women's role in the church. So the first one right here is Phoebe. She's a servant uh, of the church in Kentria. So here she is serving the church as a whole in Kentria. She's blessing and doing things to minister to a large number of people. And we'll get more into into the details of how she does that. But I do think there's tons of ministry that women can and do perform, obviously. Uh, This should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways, because like a lot of Bible teaching, it's saying things that should go without saying, um, but need to be said. 
there's parachurch ministries uh, where women get involved heavily, apologetics ministries, outreach ministries, uh, Bible translators that are women. Um, scholarly works are done by women uh, doing all sorts of different things. Pro-life ministries can be – basically, there's not really a whole lot of limits. There seems to be just one limit, and that's – in my understanding of Scripture is the pastoral or elder role of teaching and leading others in that relational pastoral ministry, that that's that one – limit. But can, is it okay for a woman to speak at a church at all? Well, I, I think that, yeah, I think the answer is yes. Although one day I'll do a, a, a study on the passage in Timothy that you're thinking of right now, <laughs> but I don't have time for it tonight. So um, my problem is this. There's a lot of ladies I've met who feel like there's nothing for them to do. Like there's just nothing for them to do. They're like, I would love to do ministry full time in my life, but oh, well, I'm a woman. So there's nothing for me to do. And I think this results from a couple problems. One is we see teaching as the only or best ministry in the church. We see the pastoral teaching as the only or best ministry in the church. And that's not even remotely true. Really, in a sense, the best ministry in the church is evangelism. (laughs) Um, But really, think about it. Like, you know, hey, man, that guy got you saved. That just helps you get a little smarter in the Lord. (laughs) Um, So that's, that's pretty important. But what I think we've done is we reduce church to a gathering. That's a big mistake. My involvement in church is primarily I show up on Sundays and I attend a service. That, that's what I call That's why I call it going to church instead of being the church. And then after reducing church to a gathering, I see the most prominent role in the gathering, in that particular gathering, is what? The teaching role of the pastor. And so then I think, I wish I could do ministry, but I've reduced what my view of ministry and serving God in church is the Sunday gathering. And I see the one prominent role and I think, well, that's the one thing I'm not supposed to do. So there's nothing for me to do. Well, the truth is the vast majority of the church is not called to do pastoral ministry. Otherwise, you'd have a large number of churches with one guy talking to himself in different locations. Think about it. (laughs) Most of us are not called to be pastors. This is true. But we've reduced church to a gathering, reduced a gathering to a study, and we only see pastors and teachers. Yet God has called us to a multiplicity of different roles, and Romans has driven this into our hearts, in Romans 12 especially. He's like, whatever gift you've received, go use it. You are all to be servants in the church. All of us. And that's the mistake I think that some people make when they look around and think I have no role. So then he says about Phoebe, I commend to you, Phoebe. So he's not greeting Phoebe. Everybody else on the list is is a greeting. He's saying hi to you in Rome. But here he says, I commend Romans, I commend Phoebe to you. And I think the reason is because she was carrying the letter from Paul to Rome. So she leaves, she departs, she takes the letter and then carries it to them. That's why she's mentioned first and she's the only one that is mentioned as I commend to you, Phoebe. Um, so that's kind of kind of cool that she, just imagine like you got to be part of carrying one of the letters of the New Testament. What if that was you? Wouldn't that be a neat, uh, that'd be kind of neat to me. Um, then there's an interesting phrase in verse 2, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. And I think this phrase, worthy of the saints, is really profound, and there's something for us to learn from it. There is a nobility in being a Christian. Not in the sense of pride and arrogance or something like that, but there is a nobility in being a Christian. And we need to not forget this. Paul looks at them and says, receive her in a manner that's worthy of the saints. That's like shows the, that you are 
you are, you know, it's like when people say, give them a southern welcome. We could give people a bellflower welcome, but I think that's when you just go, <laughs> so that's probably not the best welcome. <laughs> welcome in the world. People wave at you in bellflower, you're just looking at them like, what, do I know that guy or is he something wrong with him? Um, but there's a, there's a manner that's worthy of the saints, like a moral nobility that there is in being a Christian. And Paul appeals to this in other letters. I mean, the Bible appeals to us in this in other places when it says things like, don't you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? When he talks to them about, about fornication and uncleanness and stuff like that, he's like, don't you know you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? And, and to just bring this into my heart and take this seriously, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. Live in a manner worthy of the saints. My calling, the value that's been placed upon me, the glory that, that has been given to me in Christ is, is amazing. This should be in my thinking. It's not just about what's right and what's wrong. I mean, that's true. We don't, we don't ignore those things. But I have to think about who I am and who I'm called to be and, and what I've been made into by God's grace. I mean, what have you been made into by God's grace? And live that out. Like, just live this out in your life, the the thing that he's done for you, the, the who that you have become in Christ. Then he tells the, uh, the church in Rome what they should do for Phoebe. And he says in verse two, assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she's been a helper of many and of myself also. So help her in whatever she needs, whatever business it is. In the Greek, it's just, it just literally says like, in, the, in whatever she needs. Just help her out. Serve her in whatever it is that she needs. And then he tells them why. He says, because she has been helping, she's been a helper to many, including myself. Now that's a word that could easily be referring to her being a patroness or literally financially sponsoring the Apostle Paul. So like paying for his travels, paying for his lodgings. She's been very likely she's been actually putting up money to support and take care of him. And so he's like, take care of her in whatever business it is. So she might have been in Rome for actual like business, business purposes, which makes me wonder, when I see Christian business owners who are using the finances, they, the, the wealth they get from their business, and they're using it for the glory of God, should I perhaps spend extra energy and effort helping them? You know, basically patronizing their businesses or assisting them in something. Because... It's true that Christianity doesn't care if you're wealthy, right? We know that. It doesn't care if you're wealthy. It doesn't care if you're poor. It's irrelevant. But if you have wealth and you use it to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, that's profound. And that's the, the instruction for the wealthy in scripture is, oh, don't, don't just store up treasure on earth. Store up treasure in heaven. So that's a profound thing. So it makes me wonder if, if I should go eat more Chick-fil-A. Um, now he moves into the greetings. So verse 3, we're moving away from Phoebe, and we're going to talk about Priscilla and Aquila. So he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. All the churches of the Gentiles. So Priscilla and Aquila are called Paul's fellow workers in Christ Jesus. So they're not just called believers, and we'll notice this on this list of people, people that Paul thinks, I'm going to greet that person by name, they're generally people who labor in serving God in some fashion. It's not a list of pastors. It's a list of people who serve Jesus with their life. They are the ones that are noteworthy. They're the ones that are, in a sense, they make it into the Bible. Like, that's kind of neat, if you ask me. Um, they're a married couple. They're actually a married couple, and they serve God together as a married couple. They don't just get married and... And, and forget about everybody else in the world. <laughs> they get married and they continue to serve the Lord. It's an interesting story 
we actually, this is that undesigned coincidences stuff. So in Acts chapter 18, so why don't you guys turn there. Acts chapter 18, we, we learn about Priscilla and Aquila and where Paul originally met them. He calls them his fellow workers in Christ, where he meets them in a city called Corinth. And it's in Acts 18 verse 1. It says, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, that's the guy, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for by occupation. They were tent makers. So Paul, this was like just, it was, it was nice, you know, organization, right? Like you guys are tent makers. I'm a tent maker. Can I stay with you guys? And so that's how it started. They just house Paul, they work with him, and they do, like, our business partners. Because in Corinth, Paul didn't want to take money from the people, so he labored with his own hands to pay for all of his own needs as much as possible. And so that's how he meets them. They're tent makers. Then in Acts chapter 18, uh, verses 18 and 19, we read again about them, another interesting uh, thing. It says, Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had cut his hair off at Kentria, for he had taken a vow, and he had come, and he came to Ephesus and left them there, left Priscilla and Aquila there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So it, it talks a little bit more about what he did in Ephesus and how long he stayed there. But we, we read, he, he runs into Priscilla and Aquila at Corinth. He takes them with them on some travels. They go to Ephesus, and he leaves them in Ephesus. Then something really interesting happens. After Paul leaves Ephesus, this guy shows up. His name's Apollos. Apollos is a really neat character. He has rhetorical skills, which is not a bad thing. This is a good thing, right? And he, he only knows basically John's baptism. So he knows what John taught, repentance and stuff. He taught that Jesus is the Lord. So he knows that Jesus is Lord. But he doesn't know a lot of the details of the Christian faith. A lot of the real developed understanding of the gospel. But he does know Jesus is the Messiah. So Paul, uh, Apollos goes out and he's, he's disputing. He's literally going into public debates which it's kind of cool. We have a biblical, biblical case for doing public debates. I like that. And he debates with Jews about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. But he's only got like half the story. His half is right, but it's incomplete. So let, let's pick up in verse 24 of Acts 18 and see how Priscilla and Aquila encounter Apollos and change his life. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, that would be the way of Christ. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. This is why I say he, he didn't have the later revelations, like the post-Pentecost details about Jesus um, and the fuller understanding of things. And so, verse 26, so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So they have traveled with Paul. And I mean, if you want to learn the details and the nitty gritty of Jesus, of, of, of prophecy fulfilled in Christ and how exactly is salvation, salvation working and, and really neat theology stuff. Like if you want to learn this, who do you hang out with? Paul. This is the guy you hang out with. Like Peter even says in Paul's letters, writing of some things which are hard to understand. Like he's, he's like, Paul gets into some great details and we've been doing this in Romans. Well, Priscilla and Aquila traveled with Paul. They learned and studied with him. They lived with him. They had all those conversations around meals and stuff. They meet Apollos and they've been well-trained because of the company they've been in. They've committed their lives to ministry. That's why they left where they lived and went with Paul to Ephesus. And they pull Apollos aside. And here's what I want you to notice. 
because it's in the text, because as, be, as best as I can, this is, this is again going to be about women, but as best as I can, I want to understand what the text actually says because I believe that God's given us the instructions on how to live life and the examples on how to apply those in the scripture. It was not just Aquila, it was also Priscilla who taught or explained doctrine and theology to Apollos. That's what the text says. Let's read verse 26 again. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This wasn't just how to live the Christian life, right? It was doctrine and theology. Apollos only had so much information. So here we have um, a woman who is, along with her husband, explaining theology to a guy that is going to be a great teacher in the church. And he's, this is considered a good thing. I mean, it's couched in a good light. And I, I think that that's appropriate. So if, if there's a woman out there who's like, you're having a private conversation with someone and they've got some theological error and you're thinking to yourself, is it okay for me to try to correct this theological error I just heard? I'm thinking, yes. Yes. Does, now, does it teach that your husband has to be with you when you do this? I don't necessarily think so. I, I just think you're not entering that role of, of lead pastor for this, for this community or something. But, um, but there seems to be a, a, a right place for that. So, step by step, they changed a lot of lives. Priscilla and Aquila. They help Paul. Then they serve with Paul. Then they help Apollos and they change his ministry and affect the lives that they affect. This is why he says, I think, in verse 4, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Like here's a couple who is devoted to, do, to doing things for God, serving God, and all the churches of the Gentiles. Again, there's the word churches, plural, referring to different gatherings of, of, of people who have faith. Um, all of them, they all give thanks to you. You guys have impacted so many people, so many people with your lives. That's exciting. How do they do it? They just step by step, they follow God, and they change lots of lives. Ministry changes lives. It's worth doing, especially when it feels like it's not worth doing. That's probably the most important time to go do it. <laughs> so what we notice also about Priscilla in verse 3 is he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila. Now, when we first get introduced to this couple, the, the, the male's name is first, Aquila and Priscilla. But after that in Acts and in other places in scripture, it's, it's like always Priscilla first and then Aquila. So initially the, the man's name is mentioned first, later it's the woman's name. I don't think this is hugely profound. I don't think we can draw a whole lot of application out of the order of the names changing. But the way it works, at least in our time, is the person you know better, you tend to say their name first. So when my sister got married, I didn't say Al and Sarah. I said Sarah and Al, because that was my sister, man. I grew up with her. I knew her first. But here, I won't just say they, it's just that they knew Priscilla more uh, but rather, she, she probably was more active in doing this ministry stuff because it starts with Aquila Priscilla, but it ends Priscilla Aquila. That's the order of things. So she was very active in serving the Lord. Um, but they're a married couple who risks their necks. And I want to say this to married couples. Oftentimes we get married and we get in our little bubble. You know how, how like when you're single, you, you get home and you're like, what am I going to do? I'm bored. I'm going to call somebody. I want to go do something. You get married, you get home and you just want to be home. <laughs> I don't know what it is. You just want to go home and be home and just sit there and be like, ah, home, home. It's boring to everybody else, but I love it. You know, and that's, it's very easy to kind of like start to develop a bubble. Then you have kids and you're pretty much mostly concerned with your, your wife or your husband and your kids. And, you know, the idea of risking things or putting your neck on the line or something like that. 
it's just something you're not likely to do. But we have to remember whose kingdom is first. And as even married people, that there's a lot of service or outreach and work for the Lord to be done. And I think if Priscilla and Aquila had been like, oh gosh, do we really want to invite this traveling preacher to live with us and work with us? Like that kind of, this kind of violates our bubble. Then nothing else would happen after that. The first step was just opening their home to the sake of ministry. And I, I think that that's a, a neat thing to remember. Uh, then in verse five, we get one last thing about them. It says, likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Again, we have the word church used to refer to a gathering of people. Notice it's not their house is a church. It's the church that is in their house. Uh, this is something I'd like to do if I can get myself to do it over the next few years is to stop saying church when I'm referring to buildings. and Because you, you do it and don't realize you're doing it and only use it referring to people because that would be the biblical terminology. It's a little dangerous when we use biblical words to mean things they don't mean in the Bible. Potentially cause problems. So they started a home church. That's kind of how it ended. Um, In 1 Corinthians 16, 19, we read this about the same couple. It says, The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Now, that was in Ephesus. 1 Corinthians, they're they're greeting uh, the church in their house is referencing them living in Ephesus. But which is where Paul left them, remember? So they, they started a home church, and he left them, and they kept ministering to the home church, met Apollos. But here, in the book of Romans, where are they? They are in Rome. And they have another church in their house, which means they became church planters. So they were traveling around, planting churches, learned the gospel, carried it forward. Good stuff. Um, then we read about the next greeting. Greet my beloved Apenetus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Achaia is like Asia, so somewhere in Asia, like modern-day Turkey. Um, And what a sweet memory. Paul remembers this guy that got saved first when he traveled through Asia. Could you imagine? Like, he's going through a new territory. He's preaching the gospel, rejected, 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 rejected. And then then there's this guy, Apenetus, and he receives the gospel, and he gets saved. And Paul remembers this. Um, We actually read about this as well, not just him, but his family, Here's another undesigned coincidence for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 15. It says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruit of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. So here we read about how there was this one household. It wasn't just one person. It was a whole family. They got saved. One of them, obviously, was this guy, Apenetus. He They committed themselves to ministry, and now he's no longer in Asia. Where's Apenetus? He's in Rome. Why is he in Rome? Well, it says he committed himself to ministry in 1 Corinthians 16. So um, now he's in Rome doing ministry. That's pretty neat. That's pretty neat. It was, it was not uncommon for Paul to see people get saved, disciple them, and then set them off into ministry when he wasn't even around anymore. In fact, he was rather good at that. That was something he did a lot of. That's something we need, I think, more of in our, in our churches today. And by churches, I mean gatherings of people. Verse 6, it says, Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Mary is one who's described as laboring a lot. Much. She labored much. Like some people labor, but some people labor much. I know some people like this, right? They, they're like, they labor much. They don't just do the minimum. They, there's, there's something in them that is like, what needs to be done? Just tell me I'm already down. <laughs> you know, like I'm already committed to doing it. Mary was one of them. In verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen. 
and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. This is actually that controversial passage, uh, the verse. Um, I'm going to read it again. And the question is, Junia is probably a female name. Um, the question is, is Junia well known to the apostles or is she a, an apostle who is well known amongst all of the apostles? Like she's like, like an apostle of note. Let's read it again. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. That phrase, of note among the apostles, um, does it really mean apostles of note? Uh, well, let's just say this. First off, our most important issue here is we just want to know what the Bible says. Like, I don't care. God, do whatever you want, Lord. We just want to know it clearly, though, because there are people who take this passage and they're going to want to use it to build doctrine and theology. And I'll, I'll just give you a spoiler alert. I just think it's none of it's clear enough to build any theology or doctrine on. I think that's the bottom line. It's just that nothing here is clear enough. Um, do I think that Junia is a female apostle? I think that that's not very likely, but let me walk through the details with you. Um, Junia is probably a feminine. It's definitely a feminine word. The word Junia is a feminine word. Does that mean it was a female? More likely than not. But um, in, in fact, there's a guy named Dan Wallace who's done some work. If you Google Dan Wallace and Junia, you could read some of the stuff he's written on it. He's the guy that will actually go and read the ancient texts and look for every instance of the name as it appears in Greek and Latin and all that kind of fun stuff that everybody loves doing. And his, his point is, Junia, this name, it looks like it could have been used for guys, could have been used for girls, probably more likely girls, but in general, it's, it's a little bit difficult to like put your foot down and say, it's absolutely this. But we'll, let's just say it's probably a woman. Um, then the next question is, is she noted by the apostles? Like the apostles know this couple, or these, these two people, Andronicus and Junia, the apostles know them, or they're well-known apostles. Um, I have a couple reasons why I think it's not that they're well-known apostles. Um, why is it that we've never heard of them if they're well-known apostles? This is the only place they occur in the Bible. I, they're not in the book of Acts. They, if they were in Christ before Paul and they're well-known among the apostles, you'd think I'd hear their names like I do Peter and James, who are well-known apostles. You'd think I would hear them somewhere in the book of Acts, in one of the letters, when they go to Jerusalem, they're mentioned in one of the councils or something like that, but in Acts 15 or something, but it's not there. Um, they, they were even imprisoned. They were imprisoned. Prisoners, fellow prisoners, Paul says, but they're never mentioned even in the book of Acts. So when Peter's in prison, it gets mentioned, right? These, those apostles, get, they get named when those sorts of things happen in the book of Acts. So that doesn't seem terribly likely. Now, if we take it as well known by the apostles, that seems like it makes more sense. Okay, well, they were, they're, they're Jews. They're his fellow countrymen, so they're Jews, Andronicus and Junia. They're um, in Christ before Paul, which means they may have gotten saved at Pentecost. They may have been some of the very first ones to come to Christ, or maybe even before that, they were following Jesus at some point. And they're well known by the apostles. Why? Because they were imprisoned for the Lord, because they've been in Christ for so long, because they're Jews, so they're from Jerusalem area, very, very possibly maybe part of the, the crew who came over for Pentecost, got saved, decided to stick around, sold what they owned, brought it to the apostles, so they're well known. That may, that may be, that just fits the context in the passage more. Um, another possibility would be that they're, um, they're sent out, because the word apostles used, it, it literally, apostolo, it means I send out. And the word apostles used not only of the 12, the apostles, but it's also used of anybody who, it seems, did missionary work. 
people who got sent out. Um, so the, the, the most probably, probably the best English word for apostle in the general sense is missionary, if you think of it like that. And this is how like uh, we have Timothy is countered Barnabas. These guys are called apostles probably in that lesser sense. So the, the bottom line is, um, so they may have been a missionaries is what I'm saying, Andronicus and Junia in that sense. That's another possibility. I, I don't think, though, that we can take this passage and try to use it for like a, a run at women's rights in the Bible. And women's have, there's women's rights in the Bible, don't get me wrong. I definitely, I'll teach on that. But, but I don't think you can take this verse and use it for that. I think you're, you, you have an agenda and you're trying to find a passage that you can take and, and run with. Um, I don't think that's the case. The Bible's not afraid of talking about, about women and women in any role of any capacity, as we'll see in this passage here, but that doesn't seem to be justified. So there's the controversy, and I, again, I'd recommend looking up Dan Wallace. He's, he wrote, he even took the structure in the Greek of, of note among the apostles, that exact structure, including the very way the words are being used, and researched it to try to come up with some conclusions. His conclusion is, probably not apostles, but no one can really be certain because there's a bit of ambiguity here. And so, verse 8. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Amplius, um, my beloved. That's what he calls him. I don't know how often you, you refer to people as your beloved. There's only one person I refer to as my beloved, right? That's, that's my cat. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that would be my wife. Um, Paul calls Amplius, this guy, his beloved in the Lord. Ministry brought Paul into deep relationships. And if I can just say a word to those who do ministry, some people in ministry, they want to create a separation between them and the people they serve. Um, I understand all the pressures and reasons why they feel that. That's not biblical. We can't do that. We're not doctors where we start calling people patient instead of by their name, um, where we try to create separation between us and others. Great ministry happens with relationships. And building, and I can't, I mean, in a, the bigger the church is, the less you can have relationships with everybody in it. It's not possible. But we should have relational, you know, environments and relational connection with individuals in our fellowship, um, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the church, the body of Christ that gathers together at our auditoriums at <laughs> various building locations. So, Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Uh, he loves him. They're, they're, they're close. They're close. Verse 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Again, he's talking about fellow worker. He, no, not just a, he's a worker. In, he's my fellow worker, and Stachys is my beloved. They're, they're close. Um, this whole list is full of people who got involved in serving God in their lives and then built relations in ministry, it's really good and important for us to build relationships with people who are doing the work of ministry, whether that's on staff at a church or not. It's irrelevant at a at a church as in a gathering. I'm not even sure how I'm using the word in that context, but <laughs> whether they're on staff at a local ministry or not is is irrelevant. Um, but building relationships with people who are doing service that's actually really important. We stir each other up. Iron sharpens iron there, and it's really good for us. Um, and this is where I got to point out, uh, Stachys is, is, is where our, one of the pastors on staff here at Hosanna, who does our, our food ministry, Jimmy Stachias, says, this is his ancestor here probably, Jimmy, Jimmy Stachias, Stachys. And so I just want to mention that, I'll throw it out there, because he's Greek and he loves Greek everything and he'll tell you about it all day long. So Jimmy Stachias, Stachys, there we go. I don't have, any, I'm related to one person in the Bible by the name of Dorcas. 
Verse 10, greet Apelles approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Apelles approved in Christ. This is kind of vague, but maybe, just maybe, Apelles had a concern um, with feeling, I don't know, maybe, maybe possibly self-condemned? Feeling guilt and feeling shame, maybe about the past? And so Paul greets him and says, Apelles approved in Christ. Now you may look at your life and think, how am I approved? Well, you forgot the in Christ part. That's how. You're approved in Christ. You are approved. Like Ephesians says, holy and without blame before him in love. In, in, in him, in Christ. So he's approved in Christ. Are you in Christ? If you're in Christ, then you're approved in Christ. It's a positional thing. It's pretty special. Those who are of the household of Aristobulus, a lot of us don't have this, but it seems like Aristobulus actually had a household of people that were saved. Like his whole family came to the Lord. And so it's those who are of the household. But that's different in verse 11. He says, greet Herodian, my countrymen. So that's a fellow Jew. And then greet those who are of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. It's not everyone in Narcissus's household. It's just those who are in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. So that's interesting to me as well. Now there's actually two different ancient Roman historians that mention a guy named Narcissus that lived at this time who was a slave owner, a wealthy slave owner. He ended up being killed by Nero who seized his properties. But when you were a slave, you were called of the household of Narcissus. Just like later in another letter, Paul will say those who were in the household of Caesar greet you. And so they weren't necessarily his family. They were his slaves, right? They were these people getting saved from within the household of Caesar. They were slaves. So this is um, possibly the same Narcissus that Tacitus and Suetonius, these two Roman historians, talked about. Maybe. I don't know. Could be. Um, so they may well have been slaves. And then it's just interesting to me that um, that Paul, like when he talks about those who are in, in the household of Caesar, they're slaves. He's like sort of bragging that slaves are Christians. It shows you the value that Christianity puts on every person. And he's like, oh, <laughs> do you check out these slaves following the Lord? Like, yes, praise the Lord. Whereas to their, their society, they would have been like mocking, perhaps. Oh, yeah, you're going to brag that you have slaves. Fall. Okay, go, the slaves think you, you guys are right. That's really great. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> because to them, it's just souls knowing Jesus and everyone equally valuable. So I like that. Um, there is no slave or free in Christ. Uh, just, just free and free, actually, when you think about it. Verse 12, let's keep reading. He says, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa who've labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis who labored much in the Lord. It's just interesting to me that he doesn't feel the need to say they all labored the same amount. Like if I was writing the letter, I'd be like, oh, I don't want to offend anybody. Uh, Tryphena, Tryphosa, they labored in the Lord, but Persis labored much. But I don't want to say, I don't know, Tryphena, Tryphosa might be offended when they read that Persis labored much. But he's just like, it's true. (laughs) So he just, he's, he's like just greeting them. Maybe, just maybe, the Lord was working enough in their lives that they weren't having to deal with jealousy and petty, like, petty envy and that sort of thing, perhaps. Or maybe Paul just assumed that they would not do that when he wrote them. And so he's able to say that. Um... I do, however, get the feeling that a lot of work is to be done in the body of Christ. And there's all these workers that you haven't even heard of, you know, as you've read through Acts. It's people you don't even know about. And there's all these people doing ministry and serving. One of the things I love about Hosanna, our church, is how many people are doing ministry 
compared to the ratio of those who actually go to Hosanna. We have a, we're like a way above the 10% mark. I mean, like there's so many people that serve in some capacity here, and that's just within our local ministries. Then there's things that they do elsewhere on the side that are just really neat. Um, that's pretty neat stuff. Now, Persis is a girl. Uh, Trifina, Trifosa, and then Persis. Persis is a girl, is a female. And just notice this. There's a difference in the way he greets her. Like Amplius, he says, my beloved in the Lord. Persis, he says, greet the beloved Persis. A slight difference, but I think Paul's just recognizing, I may not want to call a girl who I'm not with my beloved, but a guy, they'll get it. They'll know. In fact, in their culture, it was more acceptable and open for two guys to show compassion or two girls to show compassion than it was for an unmarried guy and girl to show compassion to each other. And that perhaps is something we've lost a little bit of. And maybe we could try to just keep it in mind. So greet the beloved Persis. This is just a, a gentle distance, still compassion, still love, right? But a gentle distance that's kept between a guy and girl here that are not married. Verse 13, he says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother in mine. So who is this Rufus guy? Well, it's, a, it's possible. Maybe there's an undesigned coincidence here. Mark chapter 15, verse 21 we read about Rufus, or his dad. It says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. So this is the guy that bore the cross of Jesus. As he was passing by, and Jesus, it seems, was unable to carry the cross the full distance, and so they, they conscript him, they force him to do it. If this isn't the same Rufus, um, well, that seems... It seems likely this is the same Rufus. I'll tell you why. Because if, if Rufus and Alexander didn't later become known to the church, then why are their names even mentioned in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 21? So Alexander carries the cross, and he's the, or excuse me, Simon does, and he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. The only other Rufus we have mentioned is here in Romans, chapter 16, verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother in mine. And that's interesting. Rufus's mom. Um, he doesn't mention her by name, um, but that's because he's driving home the fact of their relationship. He's like, she's like a mom to me. Do you know there's like mom ministry where you just you just come alongside people? I mean, Paul is a is a together guy. He's a self-sufficient together guy. And he's like, goes up to Rufus's mom and he's like, hey, mom. <laughs> I mean, he treats her like mom. She treats him like son. So she just sees him and she's like, oh, Paul, you look tired. How are you doing? Everybody else is just like, Paul, can you explain the whole Melchizedekian priesthood thing to me again? And, and she's just like, here, eat some more food. You know, it, it, she just takes care of his needs. She's just ministering to him on a, like a mom level. And I think that's pretty interesting. So he says, greet his mother and mine. Um, she just mothered him. Just mothered him. Neat stuff. And then we get a bunch of names. I'm just going to read through these. Uh, verse 14, greet Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobas, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. That may have been one particular local home fellowship and some names he knew that were in it. Um, then it says, greet Philologus and Julia, Nerus and his sister. And, and here I comfort myself. Maybe Paul forgot Nerus's sister's name. <laughs> and so he just goes, and his, and his sister, me, the list would just be like three names and all, and that other guy and the brother and then the other one who was related to him, I think, the, one, the tall one. Lord have mercy on me. Um, 
terrible with names. So Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. So this may have been another local fellowship in Rome. Just a guess. It's a possibility why they're separate, like in verse 14 and 15. Verse 16 says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And I'm going to tell you exactly how this verse was butchered to me from a pastor, actually my pastor, when I was uh, a teenager going to a real small church in Cyprus. There was a, a chance I had to share, and I taught a study on walking in the spirit, not the flesh. And I shared it with the youth ministry back then. I was probably 19. And um, one of the girls, after that message, she called up the, the youth pastor, who had just recently got hired on as an intern, actually. And she called him up, and she felt bad. And she said, because one of the things I said to the youth, I said, hey, do you, do you think you're walking in the spirit or the flesh when your tongue is inside your boyfriend's mouth? Now, I didn't know that this would apply to anybody because I didn't know who was kissing who. But um, she felt pretty bad about this. She felt convicted. And so she called the youth pastor and, and was talking to him about it. And he called me and he was very angry. He was mad at me because I I'd, I'd made her feel bad. Um, and I said, it just sounds like she got convicted in a good way to me. Like, I, I mean, I didn't preach it in a way to condemn. But I, but I absolutely was saying this is walking in the spirit, walking in the flesh. Like, let me give practical examples so you can try to think it through in your life. And what did you tell her? And he says, I told her nothing was wrong with that. And I went, I, I can't think of anything godly to say right now. you know. So we went back and forth a little bit about this. And then afterwards, we met with the senior pastor, the, the lead pastor of the this, this small fellowship. And who, who, to me, his name was pastor. Like, I didn't even call him by his name. Right? Like, he's just, his name is pastor. Because I you first saw him when I was like 12, 13 years old when I first got saved. And so we meet together. I'm like 19. This guy's like in his 20s going to Biola over here. Uh, don't, don't, this isn't about Biola, by the way. Biola's better than this. And, and we all meet together and the pastor says, so what's the problem? And I said, the problem is he just told a teenage girl that it was okay for her to make out with her boyfriend. Like passionate making out. Not like, is a, is a peck okay or not okay? No, we're talking about passionate stuff here. And he said it was okay. And I can't, I can't see that biblically. That's wrong. Like, I wouldn't want my wife doing that with somebody else. And, uh, and the pastor said, and I quote, Well, the Bible says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Not very long after that, I actually left that church. <laughs> um, sadly, grieved. The only time I've ever, uh, like, walked out of a church, I had to leave. It was really hard, really sad. Um, that's not what this passage is about. Greet one another with a holy kiss was guys kissing guys and girls kissing girls. And that was what happened in that culture. Guys and girls didn't just kiss each other. And if you're a girl and you want to greet me with a holy kiss, unless you have a ring that I gave you, <laughs> don't do that, you know? And likewise, I think it's, I think it's a little odd, you know, when non-blood family members have sort of too much in, in, you know, hey, don't do that to me because like that stirs stuff up, okay? And I don't see how it doesn't in everybody else. Maybe I'm just blind, but I think for most guys, that's the case. Um, greet one another with a holy kiss was absolutely in their culture, no doubt about it. It was guys kissing guys. So it was our modern version of a hug or a handshake, at least in our American culture. The important thing here wasn't you have to go kiss each other. It was it was the greeting with compassion and friendship and caring and love. That's the idea, that we actually really care about one another and we greet each other with that. And besides, what that girl and guy were doing wasn't a holy kiss. <laughs> Don't forget the word holy that's in there. 
Um, none of that, sadly, none of that mattered to the pastor. And I think the lesson was this. In his view, he had this intern that was willing to work for almost nothing. And the church didn't have the funds to hire another guy. And so he was like, can we just get past this? Because this, this, this little division that's happening here is not going to work for us. Financially, we just can't afford it. And so he was just trying to push past it. And I say, consequences accepted. Let's stand upon the truth of scripture and let the financial or whatever consequences fall upon us. Uh, God be glorified. What's that? Let the chips fall where they may. It's it's old uh, salsa analogy. Um, So greet one another with a holy kiss. And then it says, the churches of Christ greet you. And that's... That, it feels like the end of Romans, doesn't it? But it's not. We still have more to go. We're going to pick up there next week. But just to, to finally say this again, churches is used in a plural sense. I, I, I repeat this because a lot of people don't realize this. And some, they actually get um, irate when believers refer to their local fellowship as a church. Uh, but yet it is. It is. And whether your local fellowship is a small home gathering, that's the church that meets in your house. Or your local fellowship is a big hundreds or thousands of people. Guess what that is? That's the church that gathers in that big auditorium or whatever you want to call it. Um, and my final application of this is this. Think of the Christians that you know. And if you were writing a letter greeting them, would you have so many good things to say about them? It's just something to really ponder for yourself. Like, would I have so many good things to say about the Christians that I know? Or would it all be criticism and it all be negative and I couldn't really think of much good to say? I'll say this, that in the past, years ago, if I wrote a letter, I would have been praising the leaders who were above me who I had great respect for, but I would have been somewhat critical of everybody else. My perspective has utterly changed. I have so many good... I'm just being honest. I have so many good things to say about so many people that are in our fellowship, that are serving in ministry. I have so many, like... And hopefully, I think for the leaders that serve with me in ministry, I think hopefully you see this in my eyes as I look at you and you're like, I really believe in your calling and God's gifting upon your life. And I'm like, you labor much in the Lord and like you're serving and I'm excited to see these things. Um, So if you could not write such a letter with positive statements about the people in your fellowship and the people you serve with, then perhaps something's wrong with your eyes. Because Paul couldn't have had higher standards, but yet he had so much wonderful things to say about people. It's pretty interesting. Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we just pray that you give us your eyes to see your, your church. And that we'd apply this to the people we know that are Christians, not imaginary believers and not just leaders that are distant and far from us who seem so wonderful and so godly, but our brothers and sisters who are right next to us and who we serve with and who we bump heads with sometimes. Lord, may we see them as those who labor in the Lord, who labor much in the Lord, those who are our fellow workers, those who are our beloved our brothers and sisters. Help us to see each other this way. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.